Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is Craig Handley, who is founder and chief executive officer of Listen Up Español. Today we will discuss how to pick a U.S. Hispanic call center. Craig leads Listen Up Español, a nearshore Spanish-language call center, and its sister enterprise, Revenue Enhancement Consultants, REC, which supports the work of service providers and affiliates. He started his professional career in door-to-door sales and rose through the ranks in several call centers. A consultant for hundreds of products and services, he has contributed articles to Response Magazine, e-retailer, and DM News on how to effectively increase revenue and profitability. Craig served in the U.S. Army and studied music as a vocal major in college. These days, his passion for music is often displayed as one half of the infamous hip-hop duo CR Groove. Craig, welcome. Hey, how are you? Great. Excited about this topic um, so that I can learn a little bit more about call centers. So I'm going to ask you a really basic question. What exactly is a call center? I think I know, but I want to be sure so that I'm starting from a good point. What a great question. Um, It is, from the very basic standpoint, I guess it depends on who you are, but in my mind, what a call center needs to be as an, is an extension of your own brand or your own product or service. A lot of people think about call centers and they think, geez, you know, I just need somebody to answer my calls. But I think that depending on what you're trying to achieve, um, I, I was just, um, I had a, actually was fortunate enough to have a conversation with Richard Branson from Virgin, and I asked him with all the different, you know, things getting smaller, bigger, fast, you know what I mean, smaller, uh, more mobile, more efficient, what's the contrarian play? And his answer was service. And I, I think that that speaks a lot about where we're going, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a country, you know, we're trying to service people better. And so if you're trying to improve your brand and trying to look at a call center as just somebody that you need, if you're going to put an 800 number on your ad, that's probably the wrong approach. You want to make sure you're working with someone who relates to your brand, who can be an extension of the message that you're trying to deliver for your customers. Essentially, a call center then is the ability for you as a business to have extra staff without having to hire them yourself. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct as well. Um, If if you want to, you know... um, if you want to expand your message through using an 800 number, a call center is something you can use so you don't have to do that yourself. And again, well, I guess I'm going into a little bit too much detail, but you know, the thing about call centers is you've really got to do a lot of research as to what type of reporting they have so you can see how that can influence uh, your numbers and your decision-making. So there's a lot, that, there's a lot that, uh, that a call center is, and there's a lot that it isn't if you don't make the right choices. Well, so let's talk about that a little bit. How do you as a business decide that you need that outside help? At at what point? Is there a guideline that businesses, small and large, can use to help them determine, okay, I'm starting to feel a little overwhelmed. Should I hire staff or should I go to a third party and hire a call center? How do you decide that? I think it's really based on, on the needs as you, as you, you know, come, come into. An example would be, 
you know, I've done work with a internet company, and they were running a lot of internet-based ads. And a lot of people don't know this, and this is a little bit of marketing, but if you send out 10,000 emails and you end up generating, you know, 10 page views, one sale or two sales, you know, that's considered a, a good email test. But what a lot of people don't realize is if you place an 800 number on that same media, you don't lose any of the online traffic. You actually gain customers that pick up the phone and call. So you can actually double your results by putting an 800 number in some of your media formats that you're running online. And so as an example, if you're an Internet company and you test an 800 number and you drive it to your own support group, your own office, for example, what you may find is that, number one, your media dollars are going further. That allows you to spend more media. And within a couple of weeks, you realize, geez, I, I can't answer the number of phone calls that I need. <laughs> because media in any type of response-based format can actually drive what's called a spiky call. A spiky call means you get a lot of phone calls at one time. And so when that starts to happen to you, if you've got a staff of four people, you realize, geez, my media, when that email drops or that banner, which is an ad online, runs, you know, I'm unable to handle the volume of calls. I really need to look for another solution. The other side of that is from a customer service standpoint, if you're not doing a great job handling your customer service calls and you're trying to run a new product or service, you're going to start to have merchant account issues. Um, you're going to have chargeback issues. You're going to have customer complaint, better business bureau complaints. If you think you've got something that's successful or even moderately successful, you have to prepare ahead. You have to think ahead of the curve, and you've got to look at potentially outsourcing your phone calls. In a way, then, there's a little bit of um – anticipation so you're preparing in order to be able to respond to this campaign appropriately so that your customers have a positive impression rather than being frustrated because too many calls are coming in at the same time and perhaps you're not equipped to handle them in-house. In sure and if you don't have the right phone system in-house they're just going to get a fast busy depending on how many lines you have. Some people have 12 lines for their office and they think they can handle calls and all of a sudden their phones are all busying out and, you know, it can, it can become, it's a great problem to have, but it, be, it can become a nightmare at the same time. Well, and it's very frustrating for the person who's responding to that offer or that campaign because usually people, if they call and it's busy, then they just forget about it, right? Yeah, that's true. And, and there comes a time when you're, when doing it in-house starts to cost you money. And that's when you're missing calls and you're losing customers. So at the point in which either you think that you're going to get, be getting more calls than you can handle or when you actually start getting those calls, you really should start looking around for outside help. Yes, yes. And I, and, and I think one of the things a lot of people do too is they, you know, look in the local phone book or what have you, but there's different call centers that do different things for every type of market. So you've got to be aware of, of, of you know, you've got to know that you're contacting the right type of center to handle your needs. So let's talk about that a little bit in terms of the Hispanic market and the U.S. Hispanic call center concept. How is a U.S. Hispanic call center different from a regular call center? 
Well, <laughs> where do I start? That's a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of people talk about how is it different. Well, it's, it's a completely different animal. For example, my name is Craig Handley. In an offshore company, my last name would be spelled J-A-N-D-L-E-Y or D-L-Y. You know, it's right down to the very basics of understanding that someone who doesn't speak a U.S. language is going to need specific training in order to provide accurate data back on your customer uh, contact. Um, you know, so that's that's one very basic thing that a lot of people overlook, that if they don't have specific training on capturing an address or a name, then you may get inaccurate data. And with the merchant accounts today, you've got to have accurate data in order to be able to process and acquire customers. So let's stop for a second with that one. Let me make sure that I understood. What you're saying is it's important that whoever is answering those calls be able to pronounce the name and interact in culture and perhaps in language with the caller. Is that right? Yes. And then if we talk a little bit about onshore call centers, which are U.S.-based call centers versus offshore call centers, because talking about the U.S. Hispanic customer is a little, it's, it's, a, it's a different animal. It's not, you're not in Brazil marketing. You're in the United States of America marketing to a U.S. Hispanic customer and so you've got to really understand, do I use a U.S. center or do I use a offshore center? That's the first thing that people want to ask themselves. The challenge is with an onshore or a U.S.-based center. In the U.S., people have gotten used to being handled by an interactive voice response system, which are the computers, speech recognition. They're kind of used to that. It's very impersonal. When it's a live operator to order a widget or to handle a service call, it's a very impersonal sales approach that we've kind of got to, that we've kind of reached here in the United States where the phone is answered with, hey, uh, this is Joe, what's your name and your zip code? Okay, and are you going to be using a credit card today? And it's a very impersonal approach. While the Hispanic culture is a very family-oriented, very personable, they have a party. When I'm in Mexico, they have a party just because it's a Monday. And so it's a, very, it's a very different type of customer who isn't going to respond with trust, not going to give you that same value if you don't use a little bit of a different approach. Now, on the flip side, being an offshore center, if you don't understand, you know, if you're sending phone calls, for example, if you're looking at Argentina or Peru or the Dominican Republic or Costa Rica, there are different cultures, or even Mexico, there are cultures down there where they like to talk. And so the approach, if it's not trained correctly, the approach could be, hi, how are you? How's the weather? You know, um, how's your sister? And the conversation goes on for, you know, a long time. And, of course, you might be acquiring customers, but your costs, and servicing customers, but your cost, even at a lower per minute rate, is going to cost more than a U.S. center. So, there's a lot you have to consider with looking at this type of market. Now, when you talk about the U.S. Hispanic market, of course, it's a, it's a very large and a very diverse market, and in terms of the language preference as well, 
Some people prefer English. Some people prefer Spanish. Are you referring to the overall market, Craig, or are you specifically focused on the Spanish dominant segment? Well, I, I think it's the overall market as well. I mean, I, I see, I see a turn coming in all the consulting that we've done within all the call centers that people, from a service standpoint, they want to feel like they're valuable again. There was a point where they didn't care, but today. People want value, and so I think that there's, in an overall market, there's a turn where people don't want to just be handled by a, a speech recognition platform. Sometimes it's okay, but sometimes they want to talk to someone real, and sometimes they want that person to actually care about their needs, especially in these economic times where the dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. In other words, you're finding that acculturated and unacculturated Hispanics, both in this respect, are looking for that higher service and more personalized response. Yes, correct. Now, once you once you've identified that the customer is Hispanic, and, and I'm assuming that's driven by the customer, your customers' needs or the campaign that they've launched. Is that how it works? Yeah, you know, there's. There are U.S. campaigns run on English-speaking stations.、Um, there are English ads that do draw Spanish-speaking customers who could read English but maybe feel more comfortable speaking in their speaking in their、uh, Spanish language. And the same thing happens on a, on, a, on a vice, you know, on the on the flip side. If you run a Spanish、uh, ad, there are people who would prefer to speak English but understand some Spanish. So you've got to be prepared both ways. But yeah. So, what happens once they reach you in your call center? How do you approach them? That's different from the standard call center. Going back to the concept of a regular call center and a U.S. Hispanic call center, is there a difference in the process that you have when you're dealing with those customers? What we've、um, what we've tried to do, not only in our own center, but when we've gotten involved in training and consulting in other call centers, what our approach has always been is to really understand that there are five pieces that you need to be aware of when servicing a customer. The pieces are a greeting, and the way that we believe you need to greet an individual today is you have to personalize and disarm the customer, and you have to control the call. And if you don't do both, you're going to end up with, you know, a five-minute greeting, or, you know, a ten-second greeting. You've got to kind of be in that thirty-second range where you ask a question that show that you care, or ask a,、uh, you know, bring up something, you know,、uh, polite on the front end of a phone call to gain trust. And it's funny by spending a few minutes on the front end of that proper greeting, personalizing and disarming that customer, your upsell rates, your cross-sell rates, your Your back-end numbers end up getting bigger, and the talk time on the back-end decreases because you've made a connection with the customer on the front end, so the trust is there. So the first thing you need is a good greeting. The second thing you need is you've got to understand what the needs of your customer are, whether it's a customer service call, whether it's a sales call, whether it's a service call. You've really got to identify what the needs are. Now, if somebody is calling off from a 30-minute infomercial or a print ad that they saw. Or maybe even an internet ad. Sometimes the need as to why they're calling is placed in the ad, and so when you answer that phone call, you don't always have to dig into that need on the phone because sometimes it's already presented. 
But on the flip side, if it's a short-form infomercial, you probably do have to dig into the need a little bit. So it's a different approach as to handling that customer. But the, the premise is, and what we train all of the people that we speak to in the consulting world, including our own call center, is that you have to know what the needs of your customer are and that they've actually had those needs addressed. The third piece is the benefits. There are three types of benefits, feature benefits, function benefits, and primary benefits. And even though people want to know what the features and functions are, they really care about the WIFM statements, what's in it for me, <laughs> which are the primary benefits. You know, why are they calling you and what's it going to do for them? The fourth thing is you've got to ask for an order. You've got to close a customer. And whether that's in customer service, attempting a save, or whether that's issuing a refund, or whether that's selling a product, or signing somebody up for a service, you've got to actually ask them to complete that process. You can't leave that open. And believe it or not, most call centers aren't really good at doing that. They almost wait for the customer to ask. As a matter of fact, one of the things we do in our training is we record good calls and bad calls, and we've made it part of our training. And I can tell you that we've got tapes of customers calling in going, can I use American Express? And the customer goes, and, excuse me, and, and the rep will say, you can use American Express, Visa, MasterCard, Discover, even a personal check. What was the reason you called in today? Well, that's really not a great way to handle handle a phone call because, you know, you aren't really listening to your customer and you're not really closing that sale. He asked to order because his needs had already been met. He understood the benefits. You know, all you had to do was greet this customer correctly and close. So you needed two pieces on the phone because the other two pieces had been met. The fifth piece that I haven't spoken about is you have to know how to handle a response or a rebuttal. When a customer says no, which they do in 90% of the circumstances because it's a natural human reaction, you've got to understand how to, how to handle somebody saying no to you. And the correct way to do that is by agreeing with them, agreeing with whatever statement they make, isolating that, uh, handling the objection, and then reclosing that customer. So there's a process that you need to be aware of to handle a customer. So you've got five pieces you've got to know. And based on what type of phone call it is, a service call, a sales call, a hard offer. A hard offer, um, and I probably should, should uh, explain what that is. A hard offer is if you have a price in your ad. That's a different phone call than somebody who has a soft offer, which is call now for more information. Or even a trial offer, call now and try our program or our service or our product for as little as $9.99. These all have to be handled differently, but all those five pieces have to be there. And, uh, and But when I say handled differently, it's a different script process and a different script flow that you have to be aware of in order to maximize the value of those phone calls. So, Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> but, no, but that's great. Important. That, that's actually very helpful because it fleshes out, I think, the concept that it's not just about answering the phone for someone else, that there's a lot to answering the call and that you need to have trained staff who are capable of handling the customer needs. That's what I'm hearing in, in between the lines. You really have to. And, and again, in, in any, any offshore center, what you have to be aware of is, is a crucial part of our training at our call center is echoing, which you know, in, in the term for echoing is handling 
what we do to personalize and disarm and control a phone call is we use a technique called echoing. What echoing does is it says, could I get your first name, please? And your last name. Okay, so that's Joe Smith, correct? J-O-E-S-M-I-T-H, correct? We get yeses. Now, when you have, there's a, there's a sales format called the Socratic method of getting a yes. When someone says yes to you three times in a row, you're more likely to have a positive conversation with this customer, even if they're upset and they're calling in because they're unhappy with your service. If you say, you know what, I certainly understand, you know, that, you know, that you're not satisfied right now. I'm going to do everything I can to help you. The first thing I need to do is verify your name and your address. Can I get your first and last name, please? Joe Smith. J-O-E-S-M-I-T-H, is that correct? Yes. 123 Broad Street, is that correct? Yes. You've now taken an irate customer to a point where they're now ready to have a conversation because you've personalized, disarmed, controlled the call by asking echoing statements. You take control of a phone call and allow for less chatter in between unless you're trying to control that, that back and forth. And you're verifying accurate data because if you can't get accurate data, you don't have really a sales process that's working. Now that we have a slightly deeper understanding of the requirements or the complexities involved in a call center response and some of the differences between a general call center and a U.S. Hispanic call center, tell us, Craig, what you think are the types of characteristics that would make a good call center if somebody is listening to us today and is thinking about hiring a U.S. Hispanic call center, what kinds of things should they look for? What kinds of questions should they ask? Where do they start? Well, I think the, 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 one of the most important things they have to understand is what types of reporting do they have? Does that make sense? What kind of information they gather in the call center? Yeah, well, reporting in the fact that, and as an example, there's a call center out there that does a great job. They have an at-home agent network, and they do a phenomenal job of call handling. When they do a head-to-head contest with 90% of the call centers that are out there in the entire world, they actually handle roughly 20% or if most call centers can handle because of the spikiness of traffic when you're taking a lot of different clients, because of spikiness, and if you're, if you're a small center, you can't even compete, because of the spikiness of phone calls, they're busying out or fast busying out or abandoning 10 to 20% of your calls on average. Most call centers, 80% of the call centers around the country, if you pulled a report called a switch report directly from the switch, you're going to find out that you're blocking and abandoning probably 20% of your calls. Well, there's this big at-home agent network, and that was how they, that's how they went from in under four or five years. Well, maybe it was seven years. I'm getting old. But in a short time frame, regardless, they had 100 agents, and now they have over 10,000. And their whole sales premise was it wasn't necessarily that they were outperforming people on results, but they were answering those 20% of those phone calls. So even if they performed equally as well, they were acquiring more customers and doing a better job servicing. So you've got to know a little bit about technology to understand how a call center works. Do they have the bandwidth so they're not blocking your phone calls? Do they have the employee base so that they're not abandoning phone calls? And how are they going to report that back to you? 
what type of software do they have that allows you to track your media dollars? And a lot of companies that are, you know, there's so many, I just got back from the uh, AHA, AHA, American Hispanic Association of Advertisers, I think it is. I might have said it backwards, but, and I talked to all these media companies, and the, the theme was how do you service your customers better? And everybody, I was talking about tracking the results. Why do you spend $20,000 in media when you don't know what it does for a company? Well, when I'm talking to these media buyers, they're like, well, we wish the call centers we work with could do that. Well, I come from a direct response background where we've been issuing a unique 800 number for every type of media or one 800 number and using extensions for print media and, and Internet media where you just use an extension number to track the ad and the response rates for it. And we provide that media result back to a client in the form of a report based on the number of calls that came in on each 800 number or a DNS, they call it, a unique identifier. And so we're providing these reports back to the media buyers. We're a partner with the media buyer because all we're trying to do is get a company who's sending out, spending media dollars, whether it's branding or direct response or whatever it is, we're trying to show them the number of people that that ad reached through a direct report. And most call centers aren't equipped to do that. They don't understand that a unique 800 number is going to allow you to look back at your media trends and understand who your customer is and who's listening to your ad and who's responding to it. So technology, I've got to say, is one of the top, top important things that you need. You've also got to know that they have a, a backup plan if you're spending a lot of money. What happens to this call center? Do they have a generator? Do they have two direct links into the building in case someone runs over one of their links? You know, fiber and cable. Do they have two different types of, of, uh, of, of channels for data to pass through? Because if somebody runs over the line or there's a hurricane and you spend $100,000 in media, are they going to be able to rescue you? People can go out of business overnight if you haven't thought of these things. The other side of it is what type of training, what type of culture, what type of environment are these calls going into? Are these agents hourly? Do they care? Do these agents receive a commission? Um, do these agents, how is that commission structured? I went and, and met with one call center and they paid their agents a commission. It was on a per minute basis. Is that a good environment to contribute to your success? I mean, you're trying to keep your cost per call probably as low as possible while you've got agents counterproductively trying to keep the customer on the phone as long as possible. I don't know if that's a great environment. You know, I mean, you've got to understand how that benefits you. Um, so have they built a commission plan around succeeding that's in line with your own company results? Um, what else is important uh, in, the, in the calls? So compliance. Do they audit your calls and what percentage? If you've got upsells or you've got cross-sells or if you're servicing a customer service call, you want to know that somebody is policing your orders and from a compliance standpoint, someone's listening to those phone calls so they can provide you with a weekly update and a weekly support in order to provide you with things that you can do better more efficiently, so you have to have compliance in that call center providing you with two things, a police report 
making sure nobody's putting things on orders and, and, and lying to customers or treating them rudely, but you also need a report that allows for you to understand how to improve performance both on servicing your customers and selling your customers. So I think those are, those are some important things that you should really look for. What about culture-specific issues, Craig? You talked earlier when we first started the conversation about how service-oriented Hispanic consumers are in the United States. How do you measure that when you're trying to pick a call center? Is there a way for you to identify whether they have that sensitivity to the culture and the language? Well, I think one way is results. I mean, I always recommend testing one call center against another. And really, you got to understand how to measure it. I have one client who had three centers up and running, and he didn't know whether he was paying $9 cost per order or 15 or 24 He didn't really understand what he was measuring. So <laughs> if you can understand how to measure your cost per order and your media dollars, then I always recommend testing one against another because that's going to give you the true outcome as to what's going on. But the other side of that is, is doing some test calls, asking for some recordings, making sure that that culture is what you want. Um, you know, we actually, you know, have put things into place that, um, you know, that just things I never would have thought of that the agents themselves put into place where they're actually using the products um, and participating in the services that are available uh, uh, at the center. Um, so culture is a big deal in today's in today's call center world. You know, I, I know if you've ever talked to or read any of Tony um, uh, Hasai's information from Zappos, he's a he's a man who made a decision to pay people who come in the new hire class. I think he's up to two thousand dollars to quit at the end of the first week, and he's got ten core values and a mission statement, and these are what he expects out of you as an employee. And if you're not that person, he's going to pay you $2,000 to quit. That's building a culture. And that's the type of culture that you want to be part of, a culture where people love to be in that environment. When, when we talk about culture, does it matter for a call center where the staff are located physically. I know, for example, that you know I've reached a point where if I call, let's just say XYZ, you know, software support number, and I get somebody that has a very thick accent, usually an Indian accent, I've gotten to the point of frustration where I just hang up and call back or find another solution because there have been instances where I've spent an hour or two on the phone with somebody that just literally couldn't understand English or was so outside the culture that the interaction was not effective. How do you deal with that if you are dealing with U.S. customers who are expecting to be able to interact with someone who has an understanding of U.S. culture and language? I think they have to do the research on that to make sure. I can tell you that there's a big call center in Nebraska that's got that had locations in a foreign country where the accent was thick, and they even tried things like, thank you for coming, my name is Troy Brown, and they tried to use a U.S. name, and it just it wasn't working. The results were suffering. Even though their cost was lower, they were losing customers because of it, and they had to make a decision to pull all their calls back to the U.S. There are situations where 
an offshore center can work for you, and there are situations where you want to make sure the dialect, I mean, you know, you've got four different personality types that you're going to speak to on any type of phone call. You've got control buyers, impulse buyers, bureaucratic buyers, and skeptical buyers. And all four of them react differently on a phone call. So you've got to know how to personalize and disarm. But if it's a sales call, you know, people are going to get frustrated by either – there's a certain customer who gets frustrated by a speech recognition platform. There's a certain type of customer that would prefer a speech recognition platform. You know, so you really got to understand the demographics of the customers and who they are and what the dialect is. And we know from, from doing studies that if you can mirror your caller – you know, when I talked, because I was on the phones, I used to be a phone rep. When I could mirror my callers from Canada or from, oh, yeah, you know, Michigan, oh, yeah, you know, glad, glad you called, eh? You know, I mean, you could mirror <laughs> these customers, your close rate would go up. It was inevitable. When you're talking to the folks from the south, you know, and you slow your rate of speech down and maybe y'all, you know, you, you talk a little bit about, if you can mirror your customers, your close rate goes up. And so the, one of the reasons that we put our call center in Mexico was because 70% of the U.S. population speaks U.S. Hispanic population is from Mexico. So we made that decision to try to get the dialect to get us that two points in close rate that you're not going to get in Argentina or Ecuador or Costa Rica or even in the U.S. where it's more of a Spanglish. So that is something that when you're looking to select a call center you should take into account uh, the kind of language, the kind of sensitivity to U.S. consumers that they have. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, if you want yes, no answers out of me, I just don't have that in me. No, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I, I, there, every time you answer with one of these big responses, I have more questions. Uh, we're just going <laughs> to run out of time. <laughs> I want to know about these four types of callers. That was very interesting. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it, it's... Everybody's got, number one, everybody's got a way that they sell. There are customers who prefer to be friend makers, you know, um, and, and kind of, you know, really make that extra connection with the customer. There's, customer there's, there's reps who sell by being pleaders. They're kind of, they kind of beg for the order. There's control sellers where they really, they actually offend 10% of the people they talk to, but they're superstars on the phone because they control it. They understand, they listen well, they almost predict response based on their experience on the phones. You know, there's all kinds of different personalities. And the challenge, if you don't have the correct type of training, is people might end up trying to sell the way that they like to buy. So when we talk about the different types of buyers, an impulse buyer is somebody who, of course, hears the ad and calls in and they're ready to order. Control buyers, they call in, they're ready to order. And if you try to personalize with them too much or disarm them too much or offer them information up front, you just lost that sale. Same thing with impulse buyers. If you're not on point with handling that phone call professionally, personably, correctly, and you're trying to ask too many questions in front of capturing the order or servicing that call, you've just offended that buyer. On the flip side, I've used it on the flip side like three times. Sorry, listeners. On the other side of that coin, you've got bureaucratic and skeptical buyers that are waiting for the hook, waiting for the catch. They're waiting for your customer service rep to say, I'm sorry, you can't return that. Or, I'm sorry, you know, we can't help you. Or, I know it said it's a trial offer. 
it's $19.95 today, but it's another $500 on the back end. These are, these are people who are going to ask questions and want more information regardless of the ad that you run because they're skeptical, which I think is self-explanatory or bureaucratic, where they're indecisive. And you know, if, you, if you're the right type of sales rep and you've asked the right questions and gone through the sales process, what's really interesting about these types of customers is they can all, they, they're all very easily sold, and sold is going to be the bad word, they're all very easily uh, able to get involved in your product or your service. But you just have to know how to handle them. A bureaucratic customer, you have to tell him what to do. You have to have sales reps that have been trained to recognize the psychology of that buyer because it, it's like if you ever go to a restaurant and you've sat down and you've gone, I don't know what I want. I'm either going to have the salad or the burger <laughs> or the steak or the fish, steak or the chicken. You don't know what you want. If the waiter says, I've got to tell you, the burgers here are phenomenal. You would be making a mistake if you didn't get the burger. Well, you're a bureaucratic buyer, and the waiter just got you involved in the burger because he told you what you should do. Whereas if I'm a control buyer, I'm going to order the salad, but I don't want the, the walnuts on it. I actually want the pesto from the other salad that you have, along with the chicken, even though it's not on that particular salad. And instead of the balsam vinaigrette, I want the jalapeno dressing that you've got. They're going to control that order because they're a control buyer. Now, you know, I'm laughing because I hear you describe each one of these customers, and I think, oh, I must be that one. And then you go on to the next one. It says, well, I'm that one. <laughs> I, I, guess, think on, on, I think on every day we can be any of those buyers. So everybody it just depends can, on our mood. Right. Now, where do you draw the line when you're dealing with U.S. Hispanic consumers between having a friendly conversation, which we know they're very service-oriented from what you were saying, and in a sales pitch where, you know, is it 50% talking and 50% selling? Is it 20-80? How do you do that? We, we try to use 20-80. We've gone the other way where we've given our reps a little bit more flexibility and our talk times have gone up. We've gone the other direction where it was too scripted and, of course, close rate suffers. You've got to give some uh, variation to allow the personality of your employee, your rep, and this is true of any call. You want to give them some latitude so that their personality can shine through and they can impact the results based on who they are and what they know. Um, but you also want to make sure that they have a track to run on and a process to follow. And that's going to be managed. You know, um, this is something that we have, which is not unique to our center, but it's unique to some centers where we actually have timers on each screen. So we know <laughs> you've got to measure data. Again, you, if you're going to be great, if you're going to excel, you've got to measure data if it's available to you. You've got to have analytical and um, data-oriented skill sets. And so one of the things we do is we place timers on each screen so I know how long they sat on the greeting screen. So I can pull a report of just greetings and pull my agents down who are too short or too long in the greeting screen and do specific training with those agents in order to improve the results. And, Craig, when you said 20-80, is it 20 talking and 80 selling or vice versa? No, 20% is, is an off-scripted, personality-oriented approach. 80% is a scripted approach. Because to tell you the truth, a lot of people believe in speech recognition platforms because you can put your best agent on every phone call which is true in some cases, and of course there's a flaw to that thinking where some people just don't like talking to a machine. 
Um, but the truth is, is that if, if, if my experts, my best agents put that script together, those are the ones that really understand the sales process and do the best job with it. We have a, we'll put a script out and we'll actually have a group of people go through and analyze recordings, results, the script, and we'll make changes of every script we put on the floor within the first two weeks in order to maximize the value of that, of that script. And so 80% um, of the time I want my rep reading that script because experts, my best people, have gone through that and made even little ownership changes. For example, something as simple as, you know, what most people do is they go ahead and get the bigger package. Whatever you want to do is fine, but the majority of folks do that because it makes the most sense as far as value is concerned. With that in mind, did you want to go ahead and do that as well? Well, by using the words most people, you've now, you use them first and third person in the same sentence, which is horrible grammar, but from a sales point of view, it's awesome because if everybody else does it, it's okay for me to do it too. Or you give them ownership. When you get your product, instead of when you get the product, and we look, again, right down to the detail of making sure we've used the word your as opposed to the word the, because our philosophy is never be satisfied with what you've got for results, and little hinges swing big doors. So always look for the little hinges. So going back to the... the list, if you will, that we've been working on in terms of how our listeners can go about selecting a Hispanic call center, a U.S. Hispanic call center. Let's talk a little bit about the script, because I've heard you mention script several times along the way, and now you've just emphasized that it really is a very important part of the sales call process. Why and in, in what way is the script relevant, or is it especially relevant, let me rephrase that, when you're dealing with U.S. Hispanic customers? Is there, is there a difference in the importance of the script or in the type of script? It's a, it's a great question, and it's funny because that's how I built our call center was on consulting revenue from writing people's scripts. Um, we were, you know, we, it's a lot of analytical uh, and psychological points you need to put in that script, but... The script has to be different for every call center you go into. One platform uses bridge scripting, and they have this key called the PF9 key. And every time you hit that PF9 key, it takes you to the FAQs, the frequently asked questions. And what we were able to analyze, again, it's all about the data points that you can provide to your customers. We were able to learn that on the third screen that 70% of our customers were hitting that PF9 key because they had a question. So we were able to identify what the question was, what question were they asking, was it one, two, three, four, five, six, or seven, and we were able to put that information into that paragraph which eliminated the PF9 key pushes on that particular page. The other thing we were able to determine is that when people go to an FAQ, most companies don't think to write a frequently asked question as a sales pitch, but a frequently asked question is in fact a rebuttal. It's somebody looking for more information, somebody looking to um, receive sales information, and what most people end up doing, there's such a thing in scripting called uptones and downtones. And if somebody says, well, what are the ingredients? And you say, well, it's got this and this and this in it, okay? And they use an uptone at the end of that sentence, okay? they're actually effectively closing the call. 
So if you don't write an FAQ with a closing question, so Ellen, with that in mind, did you want to go ahead and take advantage of the promotion today? On a downstroke, you've now, we, we were able to determine, this is outrageous, 70% of the customers that went into the FAQs were hanging up. They actually had to ask a question to get back into the script because the scripts weren't, or the FAQs weren't written in a way to drive a customer to, to an order. We were actually further able to identify 15% of the customers that hung up called back in to order <laughs> because they felt like they had to hang up. I mean, you know, that's, that's costing a lot of revenue because you now have to pay for two phone calls instead of one. And it, it hurts your results as a call center because now you're going to show two calls to get one order as opposed to one. So, yeah, it's, it's hugely important. One call center used the split screen where they had the script on half the screen and the FAQs to the right, and they were always there. And what we were able to determine is that half the reps read the upsells just on, it had a, a breakdown of the product on the right, a short description of what the upsells were along with the FAQs. And so they would read, oh, did you want to get the, uh, it says here you can also get a, uh, an accessory package. Did you want to go ahead and do that? Or uh, why? What do you think? I mean, it wasn't scripted. It was just, it was mentioning things. So their upsell rates just didn't exist. Was this so, specific? I'm sorry, Craig. Was this specific to the U.S. Hispanic market or was this, this just this general? This is specific to the U.S. Hispanic market and in general. Were there any characteristics that varied or anything that... Were there any characteristics that varied or that were specific to the Hispanic market that you didn't see in the general market? Just just the talk times. You know, number one, it takes 33% more words to say the same thing in Spanish as it does in English. And any time you don't have your scripting under control, the U.S. Hispanic customer is more likely to talk about social gatherings, friends, family, anything outside of the order. And there's such a thing as going too far with the whole rapport building process. When you make a friend of somebody, they're not afraid to tell you no. And so the only thing that I can tell you that's really, that it really affects you more is if you don't have those things written correctly or the call flow written correctly, then you're going to have a, your talk time where in the U.S. market it will go up. In the U.S. Hispanic market it will double. <laughs> so you really got to be careful. Now, I've heard from others who look at Hispanic buying habits and loyalty and whatnot that Latinos often tend to buy the best product that they can afford and tend to buy a more expensive product for their income level than a general market consumer. Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, we do find that to be the case. And, and you know what? That is a good thing and a bad thing. <clears throat> one, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that we've recognized in the U.S. Hispanic culture, first of all, I, I gotta, before I forget, the whole thing about U.S. Hispanics having to do COD, if you were doing COD on your U.S. Hispanic customer as a sales channel on an inbound call, go ahead and outsource that for an outbound callback or what have you. But don't make it an option on an inbound campaign to sell a product COD. It almost put us out of business because I bought into that myth and we were offering it. Number one, it's a crutch for the sales reps. They will take a COD order, especially if it's not, not the right culture. You know, if they're not commissioned 
or they're not, um, if they're just in there doing their job, they'll be more than happy to do a COD order. 75% of your COD orders will not be delivered. So if you've got a COD factored into your P&L and think you've got a winning campaign, you're going to end up having to pay a restocking fee on 75% of your product. So it's not a viable way to sell. The good news is, is once I got rid of COD, I recognized that U.S. Hispanics have credit cards even more so. We were out closing U.S. call centers with U.S. campaigns. It's, it's amazing. Here's, here's the things that, that are really top line in the U.S. Hispanic market. Number one, there's $5 million worth of media, and I'm not sure this is an accurate number, so this is just an example. $5 million worth of media, there's only people buying 2 to 3 million of it. So there's a lot of media out there that you can get on a performance basis, whether you're branding, running direct response. If you are running a campaign in the U.S. market, understand I have 13 companies that will run an ad on a per-order basis. So you can back into a number that works. The other side of that is your cost per call is, in fact, going to be greater in the U.S. Hispanic market. If you're paying $18 an order in the U.S. market, you're going to pay 25 to 30 in the Spanish market. The good news is, is that the response rates, U.S. Hispanic customers are seeing one-tenth of the media, whether it's direct mail, Internet, TV, they're seeing one-tenth of the media that a U.S. customer is seeing. What that means is your response rates are through the roof. Your cost per call in the U.S. might be $20. In the Spanish, it's going to be 10 or 8 this is, and this is in most cases. This certainly isn't 100% of the time. But this is what we've seen. We've seen campaigns that they're spending a million dollars in the U.S. market doing a 2.2 to 1. And what that means is a media earnings ratio. They're spending a dollar and getting $2 to $2.50 back. Where in the Spanish market, even though their cost per order is greater, they're saying $5 for every dollar spent. Now, just to clarify, right now specifically, you're talking about unacculturated Spanish-dominant Hispanics versus the overall Hispanic market, which is mostly either English-dominant or bilingual. Yeah, this is the U.S. Hispanic market that's, that, uh, you know, where, where people are buying media at the Telemundos and the, you know, the Univisions and things like that. So this is here in the U.S. focused on the Spanish uh, communities, that media channel is, has been very successful for companies who have been converting uh, or testing their media uh, in, the, uh, in the U.S. Hispanic market. Do you have equivalent data for the bilingual and English-dominant segments of the market, Craig? I don't understand the question. The, the Hispanic market in the United States is divided in many ways, but one very popular way for marketers to divide it is by level of acculturation and language preference. And so a very large segment of the market, the majority of the market, is considered to be bilingual, meaning that they can communicate in both languages to some degree. And right. then the smaller percentages of the market are either Spanish-dominant, meaning they prefer Spanish whenever possible, almost always. And another segment of the market is English-dominant, meaning they prefer to communicate as much as possible or always in English. So the data that you just shared with us a moment ago was for the Spanish-dominant segment, which in the overall Hispanic market is a small segment. Do you have any data for the bilingual and English-dominant segments of the U.S. Hispanic market? Now I understand the question. 
Um, that's a great question. I can tell you that when campaigns start, we're seeing that people are able to spend, you know, up to probably $100,000, where in the U.S. they may be able to spend a half million to a million. And that's in the dominant Spanish-speaking market, which gets you the highest calls per thousand. As you get up over that $100,000 mark, your calls per thousand come down, but it's been, first of all, we only have about 10% of our agents in our center speak English. So we do have the capability to speak English to a customer if we need to. Um, so we have some bilingual reps, but the majority are Spanish only, and we are running lots of media in the bilingual segments of the U.S. Hispanic market who just prefer Spanish. And even though the calls come down a little, it still levels out to a very successful campaign, which has been far greater than what we're seeing in the U.S. Is there... So specific, specific statistics? No, that's, that's not my expertise, so I would be, I would be making up the, the data, um, and, and so I don't want to do that, but so I don't have the specific uh, um, information outside of what I hear from our media buyers. Okay. I hear you talking about volume of calls, and so I go back sort of to the beginning when we were chatting about how do you decide that you need outside help. Is there a threshold that you recommend people use if they get 1,000 calls or if they get 10,000 calls? Is there some sort of a threshold where you say, you know, if you're getting these, this number of calls, you, you really should be looking at a call center? Is there any kind of a guideline that you can share? That's a, that's a good question. There isn't really a guideline because it depends on the spikiness of your calls. If you're running a direct response ad on the Internet, on TV, on the radio, through print media, you're going to need a call center unless you've got 30 to 40 reps. Well, I guess 20 sometimes can be enough, but you've got to make sure you've got the phone system and the tracking so that if you spend money, you know what your ROI, your return on that spend was. So a lot of times if you have your own center, you don't have those things. You know, um, I guess manually sometimes you can do it, but it's the spikiness of it. A lot of people try to keep their customer service in-house, and they try to just take those customer service phone calls. you got to know Mondays and Tuesdays you're going to get hammered on customer service calls. Um, and, and the spikiness of those calls usually come on Monday from 3 to, 3 to 7 p.m. A lot of times it's not beneficial for you and your business to stay open from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., and if a customer can't reach a customer service rep, they're going to charge it back and create merchant account headaches. Um, you know, it just, if, if you, you almost, you almost always want to outsource unless you plan on wanting to be in the customer service business or be in the call center business. If you want to be in that business, go ahead and do it yourself, but you've got to be both a service center and a product owner, you know, otherwise get rid of it because it's not going to save you any money by trying to staff for it or understand it. It's just going to create merchant account issues and probably put you out of business. From a quantitative perspective, Craig, is there a size that's ideal when you're looking at a Hispanic call center, a U.S. Hispanic call center? Should you be looking for a center that has 100 or 500? or How do you quantify that? Is there a guideline for that? Yeah, well, it goes, it goes back to the blockage uh, comment I made earlier. You know, essentially, a successful campaign or a successful branding buy or when you generate response, you kind of want to generate a response based on every dollar that you spend or every, every $1,000 that you spend. You want to try to get somewhere between 30 to 180 phone calls. You know, um, 
depending on your price points and things like that. But you got to know that if you're buying a media buy, and the average is probably 50 to 80 calls per thousand dollars spent in media, if you put an 800 number on a piece of, uh, on a billboard, you know, so ideally, if you spend a thousand dollars, you're going to see about 80 phone calls. Well, if you buy an ad that is a thousand dollars, you need at least 40 reps to handle that 80 call spike that's going to come in. So the problem is if you've got 10 seats in your call center, you really cannot place a media buy greater than $500. And there are radio buys that you can buy for $25 a spot and things like that. But if you start to see any success, that spot may run at the same as 10 other spots. So did you spend $25? No, reality is you spent $250. So you need at least, in that case, you know, uh, five, five operators to handle those phone calls. But there are some media buys that deliver a higher penetration to the Hispanic customer, both the bilingual and the, the sole, solely uh, Spanish-speaking uh, Hispanic customer. And, and any type of buy, if you spend $1,000, you know, you're going to get 100 phone calls or 110 phone calls, and now you need 55 to 60 people. The challenge is if you're buying media throughout the course of a day, you have to put 55 people on the phones to handle that one buy. And you can't really buy back-to-back -back buys. You kind of get one at 10 a.m., one at 11, maybe one at 1. And now you've got to keep those agents on the phones for eight hours and pay them when every other hour, every half an hour, they're going to have zero phone calls coming in. So your efficiency is going to drive your costs up to the point where you're losing money. Um, you know, our first year in business, we lost a million dollars just trying to staff for spikes. It is what it is. You know, you've got to reach a critical mass of calls before you can start to turn a profit, especially in response-driven media, which includes some of the branding companies today that are branding their ads, they're putting an 800 number in for contacts along with a web page. Those types of, any type of, uh, any type of ad that needs a phone call, whether it's customer service, service, or a product, you're going to start to drive those spikes. So I hope that makes sense. I know I'm, I'm maybe talking over uh, some, some people as far as the knowledge goes, but hopefully that makes sense. I, I think if I hear correctly, that there is no single answer because it depends on the kind of campaign that you're running and the spikes that come with the campaign are going to affect the staffing needs. Yeah, and it's a rolling wave. Like in customer service, if you did a direct mail drop and you generated a lot of inbound phone calls, what's going to happen is within the next 30 days, those phone calls that were order calls are now customer service calls. So if you thought you could do one piece, you have to base it on how many sales you got on your direct mail drop to determine what your customer service spikes are going to look like over the next 30 to 60 days. And the problem is sometimes you don't, you don't think that far ahead you know, if you haven't thought that far ahead, you're going to be in a world of hurt when those customer service calls start coming in. You're going to try to rush it. And if you're trying to rush it, mistakes are made 100% of the time when you try to rush through a setup. Are or should the call center staff be dedicated to a single customer, or are they shared between customers to increase efficiency what, what is the standard and what, would you, what do you recommend? 
Well, what I recommend and what you know other people recommend are probably a couple of different things. It depends on who you ask. I believe, I believe that if you do a good job of training and creating a culture and an environment, that you should be able to handle every type of phone call with a shared environment. If you understand that for every product, service, branding, every type of phone call you get, you got to know, know these five things, the greeting, the need, the benefits, the close, and the rebuttal. If you know those pieces inside and out, you can handle a call for a milk machine or a customer service call or any type of call. We do dedicate agents specific to customer service versus sales, but when we get spikes, we have our agents who we believe are qualified go into the customer service queue to ensure that we don't abandon and, and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, and, and hurt our, our client's brand by not answering those phone calls. On the flip side, our customer service, see there I go again, our customer service agents are able to sell because they understand how to take a customer service call, greet the customer professionally, find out what the customer's needs are, present them with benefits, close, whether that's issuing a refund or doing a save or what have you. They know how to handle rebuttals when a customer might be upset or maybe the product didn't get to them in time. There's a number of things they know how to handle, so they certainly know how to take an order. Other companies will tell you they need dedicated seats to, to provide that same type of service. Dedicated is very tough depending on the type of media that you want to run because I may need, you know, I have a, a thousand, um, I have over, over a thousand employees, over 500 seats, and we overflow to another company with another 300 seats, which gives us a pretty good bandwidth to be able to handle calls 24 hours a day, any types of spikes without any blockages. Um, but other centers might have 50 seats here and 50 seats there, and what happens is, is you end up inevitably in a shared environment. You end up having two shows run at the same time, and you end up getting blockages and abandons. So in those cases, those centers might try to sell you on a dedicated floor and maybe pitch you on a fixed hourly. We've done that before for customers and given them a fixed hourly rate, but really what happens is, is you end up spending more than you need to if you can get the same results from a shared floor. Does gender or age make a difference? We talked about language and culture. Does, does gender make a difference? Do callers prefer men or women in the Hispanic community? Do they have well, an it, age preference? It certainly depends on the campaign. I mean, there are, that's a... Um, you know, if it's if it's a, a, a you know a product, it depends on the product. But most of the time, no. Um, you know, we try to have a diverse group, uh, a diverse culture. The one thing I can tell you that we support our culture with is contests, leaderboards, you know, um, um, points programs, commission-based reps who have uh, their goals focused on client goals. That type of culture really just makes sure that everybody's focused on a common goal. Um, make sure they're focused on what the client goals are, which is in line with the, the company goals and the profitability of the company. So I, my answer's got to be no demographically. I don't really think it matters. I can tell you that if it's a woman calling on a female-oriented product, that she's going to be more comfortable talking to a woman, and we have the capability to do that, and you probably want to ensure if you've got a sensitive product that you can route calls to female or male, uh, you know, older, younger, what have you. But I don't. I don't think it's necessary. Um, 
we haven't seen, to, to be perfectly honest, we haven't seen really a adult-oriented, like a male enhancement product or a female enhancement that are pretty common in the U.S. We really haven't seen one of those types of products work yet in the U.S. Hispanic market, whether it's because they're more, um, you know, whether there's a, a higher Christian value or Catholic value with that Hispanic. I don't know what the reason is, but we really haven't seen one of those types of products do really well yet in the U.S. Hispanic market in three years. So, you know, so I, I don't have a ton of experience as to as to uh, the need for having a woman answer a female-oriented product or a man answer a, uh, a male-oriented product. So, Okay. So going back to some of the things that you mentioned earlier, to summarize for our listeners, you said that when our listeners are going through the selection process, they've reached the point where they say, okay, I'm going to need outside help. Uh, and I'm looking for a U.S. Hispanic call center, some of the things that they should look for, first, I think you said a very important key thing was the capability of generating reports. You talked about bandwidth and the employee base and software, Um, having a backup plan, what kind of staff training and compensation type and did they have, and was that in line with the customer's needs? And then you talked about compliance and whether they were auditing their calls and providing updates and feedback and policing the calls. Um, and then it being sensitive to and able to service in culture and in language. Yep. Did I get everything? You got everything. The only thing I didn't mention that I saw in my notes that I wanted to mention is that uh, in the U.S. Hispanic culture, and I believe this is true in the U.S. culture, we see a lot more customers using the, uh, the the debit cards, you know, the prepaid debit cards uh, that have the Visa MasterCard logo. And so one of the things we've started doing a lot of is incentivizing our agents. We've recommended to our customers, number one, that if they are doing a multi-pay offer with continuity, that they offer a, a, a nice premium to the customer to take that uh, product and pay for it today. You brought up the fact that they spend more than they can usually afford. <laughs> And that happens to be true, and we've seen as high as if you don't have the right type of premium, this is unique to the U.S. Hispanic customer, we've seen as high as 49% declines on second, third, and fourth payments. So that's a key contributor to the success or failure of a campaign is not understanding how important it is to at least get some of your customers to pay today by offering a nice, fat premium um, to do that. And on continuity, they do like a grandfathered approach. So we've had some companies get a little bit creative with continuity where they, they'll discount it by 5% each month or they'll, um, they'll, they'll add a, you know, go straight to a 50% discount on continuity. And the Hispanic customers are very loyal customers. So if you in some ways show loyalty to a U.S. Hispanic customer through your product or your service, you end up gaining a customer for life who will cancel other things before they cancel your product or service. So those are two key things in handling U.S. Hispanic customers that we've identified, that the better that we are at doing those things, again, back to service, back to culture. By servicing our customers better, we create a loyal customer who pays their bills both today and in the future, whereas in some environments, if you just take that customer and you don't create that rapport, there's no guilt around not paying you for your second and third payment, which is a mistake that a lot of U.S. companies make in handling U.S. Hispanic customers. Well, actually, that 
that, that recommendation that you made was perfect because I was going to say beyond the tips for selecting a U.S. call center, did you have three tips that you would like to share with our listeners in relation to call center issues? And you've just shared one. Are there two more that you would like to share? Um, if you're running a branding message or a direct response message, test three. Um, it costs nothing to in your creative. It literally costs nothing, $50, to put a second and a third ad together. If you're looking at coming into the U.S. Hispanic market from the U.S. market and you're looking at your budget, do yourself a favor. <laughs> Don't blow it all on one ad. Go ahead and give yourself a trial offer ad. Call now and try for $9.95, $19.95. Give yourself a soft offer ad. Call now for more information. And give yourself a hard offer. Call now for $19.95. Give yourself three chances to win or lose, no matter what type of media you're running, direct response, mail drop, um, you know, a direct mail, uh, Internet, email, banners, skyscrapers, whatever type of media you're running, even from a branding standpoint where you're just wanting to get, you know, uh, cost per click and things like that. Do yourself a favor. If you're tracking your media, run one ad against the second. Take the best performing ad. Run it against the third. Also, don't let media buyers bully you into bigger spends. The biggest thing, you know, with the media buyers we work with is they care about the long-term long success or failure of your campaign. And I'm not saying other media buyers don't. But I'm saying that there's a tendency where media buyers typically make about 10% of your media buy. They want you to spend at least $20,000 so they get a $2,000 check. Otherwise, it's not worth their time. Well, negotiate with your media buyers based on your entire budget. Let them know you've got $100,000 to spend or a million dollars to spend. And say, I'm going to spend all my money with you, but you've got to earn it. And don't let them bully you into big buys. You can make decisions based on spending on radio, for example, as little as, as $3,000. If you get 30 calls, you know, on a $3,000 spend on radio, with persistency, uh, you're going to get that call volume up to 70 to 100 calls, you know, with some tweaks. You didn't have to spend 20 grand to make that decision, although some people will tell you they're not going to work with you unless you do. That's fine. If you want to make the decision to work with those companies that want that big of a budget, do that, but if you want to be smarter, make them work harder to earn your big, big media dollars. So that's make sure you're working with the right type of media buyer um, who really understands your needs and understands what type of data they're going to get back from the call center. So that was another, another tip. Thank you, Craig, for joining us today from York, Maine. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Craig Handley, who is founder and chief executive officer of Listen Up Espanol, who discussed... And, and the better part of CR Groove. Don't forget my, <laughs> my, uh, my, my album I just released at crgruve.com, just to see the other side of my personality. Who discussed how to pick a U.S. Hispanic call center, brought to you by hispanicnpr.com. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.